So if you have your Bibles, I invite you again to take it to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy 1, and we'll read from verse 18 up until verse 20. Let's read the text, pray, and then dive in. 1 Timothy 1, from verse 18. Paul writes and says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. It's the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we ask you for your grace and your mercy as we study your word. Lord, it is a fearful thing to approach you and to handle your word. Lord, I ask you for your mercy on myself that I might teach your word clearly, accurately, um, for the audience of one and for the benefit of your people. Lord, please help us. We trust you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Christian life can be compared to many allegories or pictures. And in the Bible, we find a few of those. So, and the one I think is most famous in our minds is the picture of a race. The Christian life is like a race. And you need to be like an athlete that needs to be disciplined, that needs to work hard, keep running, throw away every weight that makes your race difficult and hard, and keep your life or your eyes on Jesus, which is the finish line. All right, um, until we make it till the end. Another imagery is one which Jesus gave us, and he compared our lives to different kinds of ground. And he says, some received the word, and because of different reasons, the word never takes fully root or bears fruit. Only one of those received the word and then bore fruit. In our text, we find another of those pictures. In fact, two pictures of the Christian life. That of a war... And that of a ship sailing. Did you see it when we read it? So the first imagery is in verse 18 when he says, Wage the good warfare. That, I would say, is the main idea here. Paul is saying, Timothy, fight the fight of faith. Don't give up. Remember the prophecies. This is what God has called you for, Timothy. Don't back down now. In verse 19, there's the second imagery. He says, Hymenaeus and Alexander, or at the end of 19, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. When people don't fight for the faith, and in this context for your own faith, you will make a shipwreck of your faith. This serves as a warning for us that we need to finish well. We need to endure till the end. Essentially, Paul is telling Timothy to fight for the faith and to fight for his faith. And that will be the outline of our, our text. So fight for the faith and fight for your faith. That would be a good summary of this text. So first, notice, Paul says to, to Timothy, Timothy, fight for the faith. And he does that by reminding Timothy that he is now entrusted with a charge. Look at verse 18 again. He says, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. A charge is something of like an officer, like in the war, like an army general 
commanding uh, someone else to do something. It's a serious command. And we have to ask, okay, when he says this charge, to what charge is he referring to? What is Paul talking about? What command is he referring to? Well, he already said that back at verse 3. Just look up at verse 3. Paul said to Timothy, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Timothy's charge, his command, was to stop and silence false pastors, false teachers from spreading false doctrine, especially about the law and regulations and rules that that promote speculation, right? And remember, the end goal of that was in verse 5. Look at verse 5. It says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. He says, Timothy is commanded to not let false teaching spread because for Christian love. So if false teaching takes root in a church, it destroys our love for God and our love for one another. So the effect of good doctrine is it gives us true love for both God and for one another. And that's why Timothy needed to stand up and fight. In verse 18, he says that you may wage the good warfare by doing this command, by silencing false teachers. Now again, what is this good warfare? What exactly is this war that Timothy is to fight? Well, later in the book, Timothy or Paul uses the same phrase. Just turn to chapter 6, verse 12. Look at chapter 6, verse 12. He uses the same language, but he adds something. And I think that gives us a clue as to what Paul is saying in chapter 1. He says in chapter 6, verse 12, Fight the good fight of the faith. Of the faith. I think that's what Paul has in mind when he says in chapter 1, we should wage the good warfare. It's the war or the fight for the faith. Namely, not your personal trust in Jesus. Normally when we think of faith, we think of our faith in God, our trust in God. But when Paul says the faith, He's thinking of those central doctrines or truths or teachings of the Christian faith. In other words, the the gospel. Things like the incarnation of the Son of God. Things like Jesus being the perfect sinless um, man and God. That he is fully God and fully man. That he died on the cross as a substitute for our sins. That he rose from the dead, not just spiritually, but bodily, etc. Okay? In every generation, we will need to fight for these truths. Questions like these will come up in every generation. Who is Jesus? What is the way to be saved? And is the Bible the word of God? And is the Bible reliable? Can we build our eternities on this book? And you and I, in every generation, will need to answer those simple questions by standing firm. Fighting for the faith. No, no matter how many people reject us. You know that, that, that famous passage says, Paul says, preach in season, out of season. It doesn't mean that I can just call anybody randomly, come preach to me. You must be ready in season, out of season. No. It means preaching when it's popular and preaching when it's not popular. So we should be ready. We should be a Christian when it's a popular thing to be a Christian. And we should be a Christian when it's not popular to be a Christian. We should just always be ready to stand. Now, it's worth noting, when Paul says, fight the good fight or the good warfare, that implies there is something like a bad fight or, or, or things we should not be fighting about, right? And he makes that clear in chapter 6 again, verse 3 to 4. Just look at that, chapter 6, verse 3 to 4. He says, 
If anyone teaches a different doctrine, does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit, understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels. That's another word for fighting about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicion. So when Paul says there's unhealthy, literally sick, sick desire, it's not healthy. It's not normal to always be wanting to fight. Some people, some Christians are there. They are always fighting. They're not fighting for the faith. They're just fighting. They love the fight. Second Timothy 2, this will be on the screen as well. 2.24 says, the Lord's servant must not be what? Quarrelsome. See, that should not, fighting should not characterize our lives. There's something wrong if you get a kick, if you get your energy out of the fight, right? But we should be kind. We should be able to teach. We should patiently endure evil, correcting our opponents with gentleness. So even when we disagree with someone, even when we correct someone, there should be gentleness. So it's worth asking, do you find some strange pleasure in your theological fights? That's a question to ask us. Do you find pleasure in being disagreeable with people? It, we should, it should really genuinely break our hearts when people deny the truth. It should not cause us to either feel superior or feel better than people. It should break our hearts. Because we need, we need to fight for what is, what is the truth. When it says fight for the faith, we should not be fighting about which coffee cups should we use after the service, right? Those are fights. You can win that fight. Okay, I just want my coffee at the end of the service. <laughs> okay. So we shouldn't be fighting about the color of the curtains or those things. Like, will that matter a year from now? Maybe. I don't know. Okay, but it won't matter in eternity's perspective, right? We should be fighting over things that are essential to the faith. Those things we should say non-negotiable. Jude 1 verse 3 says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend. That's another word for fight. Fight for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. Today, the battle for the inerrancy of Scripture, that Scripture is without error, is a big fight. We need to be fighting. Okay. Uh, today, the fight about um, men and women, male and female, that we are different and that we have to honor God with our sexuality the way he defined it for us. That's a fight. That's because those type of things have eternal consequences in people's lives. So what this language reminds us of the good warfare, the good fight, it should remind you of something. Don't expect an easy life as a Christian. Many Christians, I think, leave the faith, or like Amenius and Alexander shipwreck their faith because they expected it to be easy. They haven't counted the cost of following Christ. And once the opposition came, once people rejected, once the persecution came, one of those grounds of the parable of the sower, when the persecution was too much on the rocky ground, the, 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 the plant withered. So, beloved, expect this. You will be misunderstood as a Christian. You will be accused of being haters, of being judgmental, of being narrow-minded, of being even proud and arrogant. You will feel the painful rejection of friends and family. You will. 
That's why Jesus said this to his disciples. Something very surprising in Matthew 10, verse 34. Listen to Matthew 10, 34. It says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace. Isn't that a strange thing for Jesus to say? Lord, I thought you were the prince of peace. Now you're saying you didn't come to bring peace? Well, look at what, he's me- what he means. He says, I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. I've, not, I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against a mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own house. How painful that must be to, to love Jesus above your father, mother, wife, husband, children. But that's the cost. Our battle, remember, just as a reminder, our battle is not against flesh and blood. So our enemies are not people, ultimately. It is the devil, the schemes of the devil, his lies. And especially when we see those schemes and those lies starting to filter into the church, we, you and I need to be ready to wage the war, to stand firm, to fight the good fight. Because... Bad theology hurts people. That's why it's loving. That's why it's good. Bad theology hurts people, both in this life and in the life to come. That's why good theology is called sound doctrine, healthy. Why? Because it keeps Christians healthy. It keeps you strong to have good theology. Like good food strengthens the body, good theology strengthens the soul. So when we fight for the truth of the gospel, we are fighting for people's immortal souls. And that's why we should not give up. The aim of our charge is love. So beloved, don't grow weary of being a Christian. It's hard. Don't don't grow weary. Don't be discouraged when people reject and hate you because of what you believe. Stand firm. It's a short while and Jesus will come again. And he will make all things new. He will wipe away every tear. And yet, that doesn't mean it's not difficult, right? I'm not implying or saying, just trust God and therefore it will be easy. No, we need all the help we can get. We need all the encouragement we can get. And that's why Paul gives Timothy a lot of encouragement in verse 18. He encourages him by telling him, Timothy, you are saved. And Timothy, you are called. Look at verse 18 again. What does he say to him? He says, 1 Timothy 1, so back in chapter 1, he says, I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. So what Paul is telling Timothy here is essentially what he has just said in his own testimony. Like Paul was once a blasphemer and illegitimate child, you could say, now he is a true child. He's been saved by grace, and now he's been appointed by Jesus to be an apostle. And same thing with Timothy. He says, Timothy, you are my child. And remember what he said to him in chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 2. My true child in the faith. Timothy, you are genuine. You are a Christian. Remember that. That's such an important thing in the fight, in the battle, to remember your own salvation. And beloved, listen to this. It is always more thrilling to be saved than to be successful. It's always more thrilling to know that your name is written in the book of life than to have the applause of men. Remember, what that's what Jesus said to his disciples. They were rejoicing that they have authority over demons. And what did Jesus say? He said, don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you, but rejoice rather that your names are written in the book of life. That's the joy. That's, that should be the Christian secret source of joy no matter what happens to you. 
So, Timothy, you are saved. And secondly, Timothy, you are called. These prophecies were probably in line with him being ordained as a pastor or as a, as a minister or telling Timothy what he is going to face in the future. And that's what, that would have been an encouragement for Timothy that when the moment came that he needed to fight to remember the prophecies. Now, these prof- we don't know what these prophecies were, but what is clear is that this happened while the council of elders or pastors were praying for him and laying their hands on Timothy, probably to ordain him into the ministry. Look at chapter 4, verse 14. So just turn to 4.14. He says, Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. So this, there was a gift given to Timothy when the elders prayed for him, when they prophesied over him. And this was in danger of going out. Look at 2 Timothy 1. Just turn two pages to the right again. 2 Timothy 1, 6. He says, this re- for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So simply put, Timothy, look up and look back. Look to God and remember what God's people said to you. Remember the prophecies. So these prophecies have been made for moments like this, Timothy, in Ephesus, when it's difficult. And beloved, don't we need that too? Don't we, you and I, need to remember our salvation and remember what God's people said about us when we struggle? When we struggle with doubt, doubt about our own salvation or doubt about um, our calling in life, we need to remember God's word and God's people. It sometimes feels presumptuous to say, I am saved, although that is what God wants us to say. But there's something so, so empowering or so encouraging when somebody else tells you, you are saved. I can see the fruit of the Spirit in your life. And those are the kinds of encouragements God wants to give you as a Christian to fight the good fight. That's why, beloved, don't neglect your Bibles. Don't neglect the voice of God through these pages. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And don't neglect your Sundays. So don't neglect your Bibles, but also don't neglect your Sundays. You need God's people's voice. As our brother read at the beginning of the service, we teach and admonish one another through singing, through songs, through our fellowship afterwards. We need to exhort one another every day because this is a difficult life. Being a Christian is difficult. We need to have real friendships in the church, not just a Sunday thing. So Sundays are important, but we need relationships outside of Sunday as well. That's why growth groups are so important to be together as as a church, as other believers to study God's word. It's a very practical way to be constantly reminded and surrounded by our desperate need for encouragement by other Christians. So be ready. The time will come when you too will need to fight the good fight. It's a good fight. But you will be unable to do that if you neglect your own personal life. And that's the second thing Paul tells Timothy to fight. So fight for the faith, but then secondly, fight for your faith. In verse 19, Paul tells Timothy, the best way to fight for the faith is to fight for his faith. Look at verse 19. He says, holding faith and a good conscience. Okay, so here, faith, 
could simply be Christian teaching, and a good conscience can be Christian living. So, Timothy, hold to Christian teaching and hold to Christian living. You need to hold both of these two things together. Fight for your faith. Fight that you don't just teach and preach these things, but fight that you actually live them out in your life with a good conscience. You have to practice what he preaches, right? That's what he says to him. Hold on to this. So Timothy was to do that. He was to be a living example of how it looks like to love Jesus, to love the gospel, to follow Christ. Now, it's easy for us to try to divorce these two things, uh, good theology and good living. Either we want to focus only on good teaching or good doctrine. And we might even be self-assured and deceived by thinking, but at least I believe the truth. I know I'm not living it out, but I mean, I'm believing the truth. Isn't that enough? Or we might focus so much on living right, we say, but at least I'm living right. What does it matter what I believe? What does it matter if we don't really hold to the same doctrines or these same truths? Both are equally wrong. Hold faith and hold a good conscience. We need both of those. Good doctrine and good living goes together. They feed off of each other. right? Sound doctrine leads to healthy Christianity. And bad doctrine leads to bad living. But it's also true that if you start to live badly, if you start to indulge in your sin, that also leads to bad theology in order to justify your sin. That happens as well. And I think that's exactly what happened to Hymenaeus and Alexander. Look at what they did in verse 19. It says, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of the faith. The this, notice, is singular. What did they reject? In the immediate context, it refers to the good conscience. So what Hymenaeus and Alexander did is they first rejected having a good conscience before God. And that led them to make shipwreck of the faith. So if you have a picture in your mind, it's like the conscience is like the captain of the ship. Right? And if you don't listen to his voice, he will sink the ship of faith. And that's what happens. It was because there's a love for sin, a love for the world, that led them to abandon the faith. You see, it, in this case, it wasn't primarily intellectual. It wasn't because they didn't believe Christianity was true or false. It's because they, they didn't want a good conscience. Romans 1 talks of this as well. It says when God's truth is plain, but what do people do? They suppress that truth by what? Their unrighteousness. People love sin so much, they will reject the truth. It's a love issue, not an intellectual issue. Now, it's interesting, when you look at the Bible's examples of people that fell away, all of them have this in common. Think of the parable of the sower again, the people that might have started well. Why did they fall away? Because of the deceitfulness of riches, the love of this world and pleasures, the, the word was choked. In Second, Second Timothy, this one will be on the screen as well, 4 verse 9, Paul talks of another man. He says, do your best to come to me soon for Demas in love with this present world has deserted me. 
Look at Hebrews 3 verse 12, another one. <clears throat> Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another um, every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by what? By the deceitfulness of sin. Do you see the pattern here? In every case, when people fall away, it is because there was a love of sin, a rejecting of a good conscience. Because sin was unconfessed and unforsaken that people didn't want to follow Jesus anymore. Now the imagery of a shipwreck is how Paul views it. Think of a shipwreck, right? The ship has sailed. People have started on this journey in the faith and the ship has sunk. They didn't reach the end destination. Now some of you might be wondering, I don't think this teaches or means that true believers can lose their salvation if you are truly saved. God never loses any of his children. There's so many verses, just to give a few. Philippians 1 verse 6, Hebrews 3 verse 14, Romans 8 verse 30. These verses all teach that God is the one that the good work he began, he completes. Now what is happening here and in those other examples are people that look like they've started on the faith. They genuinely look like true Christians from our perspective. Remember, we don't, we, we, we don't have God's perspective in people's hearts. These are people that seem to be truly saved, true Christians. But then they turn out to not be Christians at all. As James would say, they have a dead faith. So they might have faith, but it's dead. It's the faith of demons. It's faith like saying things, true things, but it doesn't correspond to their lives. And also... This does not mean that those who have left the faith cannot return to that faith. Paul of all people have been in shipwrecks, three of them, and he survived. He made it, okay? So Paul assumed that this shipwreck of faith wasn't final. And that's what the rest of the text is meant to show us. Look at verse 20. Among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Paul is naming names. <laughs> okay, that's uncomfortable, but he does it. He calls out two people, probably elders, pastors in the church, that have left the faith, and they've started enjoying their sin, their worldly life, and that's why Paul said, I've handed them over to Satan, in order that they might come back and be saved. The same thing Paul says here, he said to the church in 1 Corinthians 5. Look at 1 Corinthians 5, verse 4 to 5. He says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. In that context, this was a man having his father's wife, so probably his stepmother. He was living in gross immorality, gross sin. And Paul says, put that man out of the church. Hand him over to Satan. He tells that to the church. This is what we call church discipline. When there's sin in the church, un unrepentant sin, the church is to put people outside of the church and into the realm of Satan. Under Satan's care, you could say. Outside of Christ's care and his church and under Satan's realm, Satan's domain. 
That is to remove people from the membership of the church and to refuse people to partake of the Lord's Supper. That's what it means to say, we cannot have fellowship with you as a Christian. We cannot pretend that you are a true Christian when you are living like, not living like one. Now look at what it says here in 1 Corinthians 5. What is, what is the purpose of the church handing people over to Satan? For the destruction of the flesh. So that's physical suffering, physical pain. Perhaps sometimes God just lets people experience the natural consequences of their sin. And that's a punishment in itself. By you just indulging in your sin, that's punishment enough, right? Or the devil afflicting you with, with sicknesses or something like that. But what's the purpose? In order that his spirit may be saved. So this handing over to Satan wasn't to punish people. It was a way to win them back. This was Paul's heart. This is God's heart. In our text, look at what Paul says was the purpose at the end of verse 20. Whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. You see, Paul doesn't want them to blaspheme. He doesn't want them to sin anymore, to come back. Remember, Paul said he was also a blasphemer. So he was saved from shipwreck and he was saved from blasphemy. And he knows any, if Christ saved him, he can save Hymenaeus. He can save Alexander. So when, when the church ever does this, when the church has to do church discipline, it is not a good riddance attitude. It is not a blessed subtraction. It should be a heartbreaking thing for us. The heart behind church discipline is to purify the bride of Christ, to keep the bride clean and pure, to protect the church from that same sin. Guess what happens when you just leave sin? It's like yeast, right? It just spreads. So it's for love for God, love for the church, and even love for the person that's being disciplined, that that person might come back. But today, I think it's the opposite extreme, right? It's not just that churches do church discipline. It's that it doesn't happen at all. Church discipline is not a thing. When people reject a good conscience and live in unrepentant sin, the church doesn't want to do this difficult thing. But this is what Christ has commanded us to do. Again, here our love is tested. Beloved, the best way to fight for the faith is to keep fighting for your faith. Christian teaching and then living it out in your life. A good conscience, by the way, doesn't just mean that you don't feel guilty over anything you've done. A good conscience is a sensitive conscience. A good conscience is a conscience that doesn't let you go until you've confessed, until you've brought that sin into the light. The danger is when the conscience is seared, when the conscience voice has, has been silenced by repetitive sin. So a good conscience, praise God if you feel bad of your sin. That's good. That, that is part of having a good conscience. But then do something about it. Repent quickly. Leave your sin quickly. Cut off your hand if you need to. Beloved, let us be thankful if you consider Heritage Baptist Church as preaching good teaching, good doctrine, don't take that for granted. Thank God for that. Let us be aware of not just thinking that that is all we need. We do need good theology, but then let us also be vigilant to do it. Let us steadfastly pursue Christ 
as our all-consuming love and our first love. Let us keep watch over one another with praying for one another, carrying one another's burdens. Let us keep confessing our sins. I've shared this with other brothers as well, but there's a, a very famous resolution from Jonathan Edwards that just encourages me. He says, I've, I'm resolved not to give up fighting my sin, no matter how unsuccessful I might be. No matter how long it takes me to kill the sin, I'm not going to stop fighting the sin. And then as we fight for the faith, for your faith, with God's people, we will be waging the good warfare, the good fight. And our ship of faith, by God's grace, will reach safely heaven and eternal life. That should be our goal. And I pray God would do that for all of us. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, who is sufficient for these things? Lord, we know our spirit is willing, and but so often our flesh is weak. Lord, like sheep, we are often frightened and scared. Oh Lord, but thank you that you are faithful, that you keep your own. The good work you began, you will complete. Lord, when the time comes for our faith to be tested, for us to stand for truth, for love for you and love for people, that they too might be saved and have eternal life with us, may we not shrink back in fear. Lord, give us the wisdom to know when to open our mouths and give us the wisdom to know when to close our mouths, when to just listen, when to be patient. Lord, we... We often make mistakes in these areas, and Lord, we pray that you would guide us by your Holy Spirit, that your Spirit would lead us to the truth and to love, Lord. Lord, please protect us as a church, protect your church in South Africa, in Port of Struem, and in the world, Lord, that we would continually hold up the truth. Lord, and we look forward and we thank you, Lord, that you are the author and the perfecter of our faith. And that is our rest, we pray in Jesus' name.